featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. In today's episode, Tim Geyer and I are pleased to welcome Casey Taft to ARZone. Casey, who is Professor of Psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine, focuses his research on the prevention of interpersonal violence. Casey has consulted with the United Nations and domestic violence programs that he has developed are being utilised in the United States Department of Defence as well as the Veterans Health Administration. He's also the co-owner of Vegan Publishers, understanding that working towards prevention of violence done to other animal species follows naturally from working to end the violence humans do to each other. Professor Taft, who has published over 100 journal articles and scientific reports, is the author of the upcoming book, Trauma-Informed Treatment and Prevention of Intimate Partner Violence, and also the author of the recent book, Motivational Methods for Vegan Advocacy, A Clinical Psychology Perspective. Casey joins us today to talk about that book. Hi, Casey. Welcome to AR Zone. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Casey, in our introduction, I said that you see your vegan mission in similar terms to your work on preventing domestic violence. I'd like to ask you about that, but first I'd like to ask you what we here in AR Zone call the Ronnie question in honour of AR Zone's longtime good friend and admin, Ronnie Lee. Ronnie and we would like to know when did you become vegan, why did you become vegan, and what causes you to act now as an advocate on behalf of other animals? Sure. Um, well, when people ask me that question, I, I tell them I became vegan about five years ago, but for about um, another uh, probably around eight years or so before that, I was on a plant-based diet, basically. I I went on a plant-based diet originally for, for health reasons at the end of graduate school, um, my body pretty much just gave gave up on me because I had been kind of abusing it for so long and not really taking good care of myself. So, um, so I ended up you know, doing making a lot of changes and um, changing my diet seemed to really help my health. And at the time, I I it's not that I didn't regard the um, the ethical aspects of, of things. It, it, but at the time, I thought of it as kind of a, a side benefit. You know, I thought maybe it would be good for my karma. But um, I didn't originally go on that diet because of um, ethical reasons. So it really wasn't until I'd say about five years ago when um, I was on a plant-based diet and I was kind of every once in a while cheating and eating dairy. And um, a friend of mine who was a vegan who I was talking to at a conference really directly challenged me on, on that and and you know made made the made the case that you know, I wasn't behaving in in accord with my ethical beliefs and I knew I knew she was right and from that moment on I've been fully vegan and uh, you know in in the true sense of the word you know trying to minimize the harm I do to animals and in all ways to answer the second part of your question so I guess bringing in the other part, the first part of what you mentioned about my other job, you know, I, I feel that preventing unnecessary violence towards anybody, whether it's humans or, or animals is pretty much the most important thing we can do. And, um, for years, 
like you mentioned in the intro, I've been working to prevent interpersonal violence, intimate partner violence. Um, and uh, sorry, that's my little girl. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's no problem. <laughs> and um, and and I, you know, really resonated with with veganism and animal advocacy because you know helping end unnecessary violence towards animals is something that we can all do through vegan advocacy. So I find my you know my day job very rewarding, preventing intimate partner violence. And and I found that I could prevent even more violence by promoting veganism and helping folks go vegan. How does your experience as a clinical psychologist working to end violence equip you to have insights into whatever approaches do or don't work the most effectively within um, animal advocacy? It's it's really interesting. I I find that in the work that I do and um, the domestic violence I, I, I do, domestic, domestic violence work I do is with, primarily with perpetrators of domestic violence. I've developed group therapy programs and done clinical trials um, showing their effect, effectiveness. Um, a lot of the same strategies I use uh, with domestic abuse perpetrators I find really helpful in my animal advocacy work. Um, for example, you know, trying to help people change a behavior that they don't necessarily see as problematic and they're not necessarily motivated to change. Um, I get a lot of resistance from abusive patients that I work with who get court ordered to see me. They don't want to be there. They don't want to change. And I have to find a way to um, to motivate them and to try to help them see a reason why they need to change and why their behavior is problematic. Um, I ha- so I have to consider motivational issues. I have to kind of carefully assess where they are in terms of their readiness and try to um, find the message that works for them to for to convince them to make that change. It helps to develop relationships with folks who you're trying to help change. It helps when you approach them um, from a, a motivational standpoint where we listen to their story, we listen to what they have to say rather than kind of jump down their throats and you know, tell them that they're, you know, a, a horrible person, an abuser, or, uh, you know, in the case of animal advocacy, or, you know, a murderer or, or what, what have you. So really, you know, the rules of behavior change apply, whether we're talking about ending violence towards humans or towards animals. It's, it, it's more similar than it is different. Thanks, Casey. I think it's interesting that you made mention of the fact that a lot of the human people who you work with don't see a problem with their behaviour. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't see themselves to be um, perpetrators of violence or to see their behaviour to be problematic. And I think that that's that's one area that um, is very similar with with um, animal advocacy, where, where humans don't see what they're doing to other animals or what they're part of to be a problem. Yeah. So I, I can understand that people would kind of question how the two are as similar as you think they are. But I think that yeah. that's, that's a key point. Yeah. Well, I think most people like to think of themselves as good people. So um, presented with information that their behavior does harm to other people and that they're causing suffering to others is not something that folks often uh, readily accept. And it can and it Induce it can induce or bring about kind of a shame response where they get um, you know 
really angry at us for even suggest, suggesting that their behavior is problematic. So exactly. these are things that I deal with as a psychologist, but also as an animal advocate. Hi, Casey. It's Tim. Um, okay. So thinking about the, the, the difference between domestic violence and what's happening with animals, it seems to me that while it's likely true that you know many, if not, I don't know, most people who are perpetrators of domestic violence um, you know, probably don't think that they're the person that needs to change or they don't recognize what they're doing is violent or what have you. But at the same time, the rest of society doesn't overtly condone their behavior in the way that society not only condones but supports and and promotes the use of animals as food and other and other human resources. So mm -hmm. the you know there's a disconnect there because maybe the you know the perpetrator may not think that they're doing violence but at least the way the world works today, you know, maybe 50 or 100 years ago it wasn't the same, but today it doesn't seem like I mean I think most of society would would stand back and go no you are violent whether you choose to accept it or not. That doesn't seem to be the case in, with you know with in the animal question. It seems like most mm -hmm. of society would say, well, this is different. This yeah. isn't the same sort of thing. So right. does that show that there's a difference between what you do in the domestic violence and what has to be done with advocacy? And if and if it does, what does that mean for how people ought to be doing advocacy? Well, well, sure. And, and in the book, I, I don't claim that they're the same. Um, what I do talk about is how the rules of behavior change. When we're trying to help people change a behavior, our similar regardless of the behavior we're trying to change. So yes, it's true. Society views these things differently, although a lot of the behaviors my patients engage in, you know, it's not uh, readily observable physical violence, but more like psychological and abuse, coercive abuse that is not even necessarily illegal and it may be more subtle and they may not recognize that it's a problem. But anyway, but, but the point that the, the point that I make in the book is that if we're trying to help people change a behavior for which we really want to bring about internal change, and we want folks to kind of make the connection between their behavior and how it's affecting other people, that the rules of clinical psychology, the rules of behavior change apply to them. And so things such as developing um, clear... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's my girl again. <laughs> developing clear, <laughs> developing um, clear goals with them, trying to meet them where they are and, and motivate them to change. Um, trying to develop a relationship with them. All of these things are important to us as clinical psychologists, and they're also important to us as animal advocates. Casey, I'd like to ask you about your critique in the book of what advocates can learn from the research that's been done lately by advocates and advocacy groups. For example, in Chapter 4 of the book, you reject the application of the foot-in-the-door technique to animal advocacy, and you argue that its effectiveness in one area isn't necessarily evidence of effectiveness in animal advocacy. But since people are people and psychology is psychology, why isn't it reasonable to infer that the effectiveness of the technique replicated in hundreds of separate studies is likely applicable to animal advocacy? Why, in your view, is drawing inferences from these prior studies relying on um, speculation and distortions? Well, I believe that 
when we're talking about certain classes of behaviors, such as um, behaviors that involve true internal behavior change, that in the case of the foot in the door technique and how it's been applied, I think we're really comparing ap apples and oranges. So, you know, I think that there has been kind of a misapplication of marketing techniques to animal advocacy. I think the approach by which we would sell a car to somebody is not really the same approach that we should be selling veganism to people, where you know, selling a car or um, changing your home energy use patterns or that sort of thing um, may, you know, using marketing skills, using um, using kind of salesmanship techniques may be effective, but I don't think it's effective when we're talking about making a long-term internal behavior change um, that involves kind of an ethical component. I think in order to bring about the change that we need, we really need to look more to, you know, how do we, how, how, well, I, I think we should look more to clinical psychology and how we can influence people who aren't motivated to, to make a change. Um, also, just to be clear, um, there isn't any research that, you know, on the foot in the door technique or on these salesmanship techniques applied to animal advocacy. Um, so there isn't any research showing that that is, that is effective. And I, and I also think that there's a lot of problems with the overall reducitarianism approach. It seems to be getting so big in, in the animal advocacy because it downplays the, the social justice dimensions of the issue. You know, suggesting to people that it is okay to cut down on using animals and really just cutting down on eating animals, not even focusing on all the other ways we use and do harm to animals, I think is really doing a kind of a, an injustice to those animals who are still being consumed um, on that part-time basis. And we would never be talking about, you know, foot in the door technique applied to domestic violence perpetration, for example. I would never say to my patients, uh, well, why don't you just, you know, cut down on your domestic violence, and, you know, in the hopes that, you know, they cut down a little bit on their domestic violence and then, you know, eventually they'll end their domestic violence. I think it makes much more sense to talk about, you know, Let's end, let's end all violence. Let, let's try to develop that as a goal. And if we can't develop that as a goal, let's talk about what gets in the way of doing that. You mentioned um, reducitarian approach. I think there's a lot of confusion about that within the advocacy community. Um, a lot of people seem to assume that a reducitarian approach is similar to a vegan approach, but we're asking non-vegans to, I guess, take baby steps in the lead up to becoming vegan. But a reducitarian approach isn't actually asking for veganism to be the end goal, is it? Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think it is. It's really just saying kind of do the best that you can. You know, if you can cut down on eating animals, um, you know, if you can cut down, then that, that's something, that's a, you know, a noble goal. And I think that folks who are promoting it aren't necessarily vegan themselves. So I always find it strange when folks suggest that the best way to get people to ultimately go vegan is to promote reducitarian, reducitarianism. It just strikes me as really odd. And, 
again, if, you know, talking about research, there, there's a whole research literature on goal setting, showing that developing a clear long-term goal that's not necessarily easy to attain is really the best way to bring about behavior change. So just telling somebody to do your best is not really helping them develop, like, what is that long-term clear goal we want them to develop? And it's, um, and if we work with them to set that vegan goal as a long-term goal, they may very well reduce their animal use on the way to veganism, um, but we're not trying to map out how they should be reducing. We're promoting veganism and leave it up to them about how they're going to get to that goal. If we were to advocate for reducitarianism, how does that affect the way that we view other animals and, and how we view them as, as literally more than resources or even recipe ingredients? Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and I think um, I think it's a big issue. Even and there and again, there isn't any research showing that reducitarianism is effective. Even if there did happen to be a study that showed reducitarianism was effective, it still doesn't deal with that issue that it's promoting societal norms suggesting that using animals is okay. So I think it has you know big picture implications for the overall message we want to get out there. And if we want society to change the way they view animals, we as advocates should not be promoting anything that suggests that it's okay to use animals in moderation. You're right that promoting anything less than veganism will likely lead to individuals doing more harm to other animals, both in the short term and the long term. I've got two questions about that. First, how do you know that? Is there any research that bears specifically on that claim? I'll let you answer that and then I'll follow up with my second question. Sure. And I don't think I I don't think I, I wrote it in such a way that I was saying definitively as if like research showed this. So I want to be clear that what I am telling you now, you know, my answers and, and what I wrote in the book is are, are ba- is it's basically my opinion. And I, I don't claim that this is based on research and animal advocacy because there really isn't any <laughs> research on animal advocacy that's been peer-reviewed peer in any way um, to say that one overall approach is, is, be- is better or more effective than anything else. Casey, it seems that a person is most likely to engage in long-term behaviours that are consistent with their self-identity. Do you think it's possible or even likely that as a person makes small changes in their behaviours, changes that don't threaten their own self-identity, they may come to see themselves more and more as the type of person who cares about other animals and they're then more likely to adopt more and more of the habits of those who do actually care and eventually become vegan. I think we need to um, assume the best in others and assume that they are able to hear a vegan message, that they um, will able to be able to resonate with the idea that we have no need to be um, using animals in any way. And, you know, may, maybe that message will partially resonate with them and they will start to make those changes. But again, there's no evidence that asking people to make those small changes will actually be more effective in them making those small changes than if we talk to them about veganism. So I, I think oftentimes people make the assumption, you know, if, if I ask somebody to cut down, then that is 
um, you know, that is going to lead them to cutting down more than if I ask them to go vegan. Well, I would argue that if we're promoting veganism, they, I think they will be more likely to cut down than if you just directly ask them to cut down. And I think they sure as heck will be more likely to go vegan if we promote veganism, which really is ultimately what we want to see. You know, uh, I mean, when people cut down on, you know, when people go on a diet and they cut down on eating certain things, and if there's no, if they don't resonate with, with it ethically, then they're going to go back and forth on their diet just as if it were any other diet. So I just don't think, you know, the avoidance of having a strong um, ethical message is, is can be an effective strategy. I think our best argument, our, our the most compelling argument we have as animal advocates is that we don't need to be using animals at all. We don't need to be killing and eating and using them in different ways. There's no there's no argument that's as strong as that. So I don't see why we would choose a different approach that isn't that isn't as strong. Thanks, Casey. And that goes back to your goal setting too, doesn't it? Having a having a solid goal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole huge literature on that in you know clinical psychology and bringing about behavior change to really have that clear long-term goal. And again, the research shows that that goal doesn't need to be um, easy to attain. And actually, the more difficult it is to attain, um, the more effective it is because folks will work towards that goal. They're mon- they'll monitor their progress towards that goal. And they'll have a really clear idea of what it is that they're shooting for. Yeah, that, that assumes that they take on the board on board the goal as as something that they need to shoot for, though, right? True. Yeah, but, but like like yeah. I said a little earlier, they may not fully resonate with it, or they may partially re- resonate with, with it. I think our goal, our role as advocates, should be helping them develop that goal. So if they're not fully on board with that end goal we should try to figure out where they are in terms of their readiness to change. And I talk about this in the book too, the stages of change. People may be at all different stages in terms of their readiness to change. And we should try to move them to the next stage. So if somebody is not even considering, you know, changing anything about their animal use, it would be a victory if we could get them to start thinking about it. Or if somebody's only beginning to think about it, to me it would be a victory to get them to actually start to think about preparing to make that change towards veganism and so on. You know, I, right. I, and so it's not that it's not that a person beginning to consume fewer animal products every week compared to what they consumed last week. That's not a bad thing. What you're saying is that advocates shouldn't suggest to anybody that they that they that they do that. Yeah, I, or I, I, of that course, if they I, do I don't it, think they, it's a I don't think it's a bad thing when anybody moves closer to veganism. I think that's a good thing. So I I think there's this false idea, you know, people throw this out there that, you know, when we promote veganism, that we are talking about an all or nothing approach. And that's not at all what it is. It's, it's a matter of working with folks to develop clear goals and to try to move them along in terms of their readiness to change. Um, So, you know, for me, it would be a victory if I can get somebody to to increase their motivation to get closer to that vegan goal, what, whatever it is. So if you say to me, the goal should be that I become vegan, and I say, well, I'm not interested in that. And then you say, mm-hmm. well, cut down. And I say, well, 
why should I? If what you want me to do is become vegan and I'm not willing to become vegan, why should I cut down? I'm not – I don't share so your To be goal. honest, with, with somebody like that, I, I would move on to somebody else. If I have somebody who's blatantly saying I have no interest in um, you know, in veganism, I have no interest in you know, minimizing the harm I do to animals, then they are not um, considering changing and probably – um, my efforts will, will be a waste of time and I, I, w I should seek out somebody who's more willing to change. I mean, I think m most of us as animal advocates deal with that situation, you know, with our own family, for example, where we try to talk to them about veganism. Oftentimes they're not really interested. They're not ready to receive that message and no amount of kind of pushing and trying to Force things is going to bring about the change we, we want to see. So I say when you have somebody who's completely not interested, completely not open to it, you know, I provide basic education to try to raise their awareness, to try to move them to the contemplation stage where they're actually thinking about the issues. Um, but there's not, there's not a whole lot else you can really do in, in that scenario. I just wanted to touch on what you mentioned about the, um, the all or nothing claim that that's often made by the reducitarians no one's actually asking for all or nothing i don't i don't even know what that means when people people make the claim that that advocating for veganism is is an all or nothing thing do you are you able to elaborate <laughs> on that because i don't know i, don't <laughs> I wish i wish i could explain i mean <laughs> we we would not talk about that when we're talking about other issues of social justice you know when we're we promote the end of racism you know nobody says well you're just being all all or nothing about that you know we oh. should be you know or, or or sexism or or interpersonal violence you know nobody says we're being all or nothing you know i think the only reason that people will suggest you know we're taking an all or nothing approach is because of species speciesist attitudes you know where animals are still viewed as commodities and not as kind of sentient beings who who you know deserve to to live you know live free exactly it just seems to be it seems to be an insult that's, that's launched launched occasionally to silence i i do think i do think that um you know the whole reducitarian approach really um, downplays the social justice dimensions of the issue and really doesn't um, I, I think I think it's really um, I think it does an injustice to to the animals who are being harmed absolutely I couldn't agree more Casey assuming that there are sufficient resources including time and money and volunteers what do you think the key action for advocates should be what's the one thing that would best help spread the vegan movement I, I think, um, well, I mean, like we've been talking about most most of the interview is uh, promoting veganism, <laughs> and it seems it seems obvious, you know, to say if we want a vegan world, we should be talking about veganism, but unfortunately, this seems to not necessarily be the case for you know the the mainstream animal advocacy movement where. Folks instead are talking of you know trying to encourage people to go vegetarian or or veg or to cut down. You know I I see this as really the the biggest threat to our success as as a movement and to seeing a vegan world. So more than anything, and I know I know we you know we always get into these debates as advocates about all these different elements of of animal advocacy. But I think for me more than anything, promoting veganism and to not be ashamed 
of, of promoting veganism, to not be ashamed to call ourselves vegan, to be proud of it, to um, be assertive when we talk about it. You know, I think this is a, a big challenge. And often when I give talks or when people read my book, they will tell me, you know, th- they will say, you know, they'll thank me and say that, you know, I am one of those passive vegans that, that you talk about and that you write about in, in your book. Um, that I, I have been kind of silencing myself and kind of afraid to speak out for animals. Um, so I, I think that is really an important way, important part of all of this is that we need to be proud of being vegan. We need to not be afraid to talk about it and really work on trying to kind of more clearly advocate for animals. And I know, I know there's a lot of things that get in the way of that. There are these you know, stereotypes about vegans, such as, you know, the angry vegan. So you have a lot of people who are just so afraid of being that angry vegan that they completely silence themselves. And I think that's, I think that's a big problem in, in our movement. Thank you for that advice, Casey. Before we wrap up today, would you like to share with us your own plans for the future as well as for the future of vegan publishers? Oh man, that's that's a good question. Um, <laughs> well, I have a lot. I have a lot of plans for um, for my anti-violence work. You know, our our um, my domestic violence prevention program. Um, we've shown that it works through clin- clinical trials. We're now rolling it out across different healthcare systems in in military veterans. So the next stage of this is to do this among civilians. Um, I would love to find a good way to bring together my animal advocacy work and my clinical psychology work. I'm still kind of working on figuring that out and how to do that. Um, We also, for vegan publishers, we have a lot of of books in the works that that we're really excited about um, doing. We're going to be doing more children's books for vegan families. Um, We're finding more and more vegan families are um, looking for resources, so we want to help them and give them resources. I want to I do something also for vegan teens who regularly email me on our vegan publishers page asking for advice and are struggling with issues of dealing with, you know, family members who don't accept their veganism and that sort of thing. So really, I think of vegan publishers the same way I think of my research job, that we want to kind of fill gaps that um, fill gaps in knowledge, and we, we want to provide resources where there aren't currently resources. That sounds fantastic. I love that you're thinking about doing something for teenagers because I think they often get left out. There's a lot of things done for adults and a lot of things done for young children, but teenagers just don't seem to get the same amount of attention. So that's fantastic. Kate? Casey, thank you so much for your time today and thank you for writing your thought-provoking book. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Um, well, well th- thank, you for, thank you for having me. Um, final thoughts, uh, I guess, um, you know, it, I guess I would encourage folks to, you know, stop by our Vegan Publishers Facebook page. I think I think that's a great place to engage in advocacy. Um, a lot of non-vegans post on our page. We get trolled um, every once in a while, but there are also a lot of people who really do um, come to our page looking for advice and feedback, and other vegans on our page are really helpful. I just had a non-vegan write me today and, and tell, tell me that she's going vegan, you know, large part to our page. So that's, it's always really awesome to get, get yeah. those kinds of messages. 
so yeah, I mean, I encourage people to stop by our page and uh, we're going to be doing a lot more blogs for uh, advocacy and activism to, you know, help folks, you know, help give some guidance and to just give different perspectives on things and, and um, yeah, and, and check out, check out my book if you're interested in getting a, a clinical psychology perspective on how to um, help people go vegan. Casey, thank you again so much for joining us today in AR Zone, and I want to sincerely thank you for all the work that you continue to do on behalf of both humans and other animals. Likewise, likewise. Thank you for all you do. Thanks, Casey. Thank you, Casey. And thank you to thank your you daughter for, for lending you to us. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.